other side of the sea saw that there had only that had um, saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had been eat, uh, they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? We didn't, we didn't see you on the boat. There was only one boat. When did, when did you get here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not... It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Right? Cannibal. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, 
I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate, not like that manna, and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing himself that the disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Is it the Spirit who gives life? The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who were those who were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil, is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. One of the things that you notice over and over in this kind of longer text that we're reading is Jesus repeats himself over and over. He says that I am, the, the, he used to call himself the son of man, um, which just quickly as an aside, we're not going to go into the, the deep theology of what that means, but often as a cursory reading of the scriptures, when we see Jesus say son of man, we're like, okay, so he's saying he's human. But in fact, um, Daniel 7 actually is a prophecy of the Son of Man to come, who, one who is riding on the clouds. It actually is a prophecy of the Messiah, a prophecy of, of the Christ, the one who is to come. Um, but he talks about eternal life, being the bread of life, eating and drinking. That the fathers, um, the people that the Father chooses and send to me are mine. He says things over and over and over again, and he needs to repeat himself over and over, and people don't get it. Right? Often we don't get it. When I hear the bread of life, right, we, I jokingly said, right, Ned's garlic bread before we think about the, the eating the delicious food, but it's, it's true. I mean, you think about um, the best bread you've ever had. A couple of people have some smiles on their faces, like remembering eating that bread. Right? Um, Bertucci's rolls, those, those were really good. Bertucci's not really around anymore, but those are good. Um, Mom's rolls, she made them last night. Right? Delicious. Up in Buffalo, there's this Italian restaurant we go to for uh, Christmas time, whatever, they're called Pains. Some of the best bread, little Italian bread with some sesame seeds that, that I've ever had. But you know what? The next morning, I want more. Right? I've eaten my fill, and I hunger again for it. And Jesus is saying that there's a bread that satisfies you for a time. There's a bread that the Father gave, the manna that the Father gave to the people of Israel when they were in the wilderness and they were hungry, and it satisfied them for a time. 
but it doesn't fill us forever. There's, it doesn't nourish us forever. Only Christ, only I can do that. And that's the big picture view of what is happening here. I don't know if you guys remember this, but years ago, I'm not a huge football fan. I watched the Super Bowl for a little bit, uh, maybe some football here and there as the, the season goes on. But years ago, there was this interview that Tom Brady um, gave, right? Tom Brady, the greatest of all time. And I have no dog in that fight, so I'll just say it. Like he's the greatest of all time. He did with 60 minutes, right? He was at the height of his career, although not quite. He only had three rings instead of six, right? But he had won two MVPs. He had won three Super Bowl titles, right? He married a supermodel, multimillionaire, everything like in worldly mindset you could possibly want, right? Rich, beautiful people winning Super Bowls. I mean, there's pretty much in the, sums it up. Right, that's his story, and many of you uh, might have seen the interview, and he sits down with the journalist and says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? Now, I don't think he was prophesying the three more rings. Right? I, needed, I needed to fill up one hand and get more on the other. Like, there's this deep longing that he had for something else. He says, I think it's going to be more than this. I mean, this isn't it. This can't be what it's all cracked up. Like, this can't be what it's all about. And the journalist asks, what's the answer? And Tom Brady responds, I wish I knew. You think that? I wish I knew. And that's a story that we've heard plenty of times, I think, from people who are at the top. And I work with students who, right, that are um, generally, like, lower middle class to, to poor, to working poor. And... Um, the, the, the whole like the Instagram world and seeing people and all that they have and wanting to be rich because they think money solves all the problems. And I always ask, do you think people in Hollywood are happy? And generally, when they think about it for a minute, they think, well, no, because I've seen, I'm so exposed to what happens and what goes on that they're not. There's just something that they wish they knew. Just like Tom Brady wishes he knew that there was something more, that there's something is missing. There's a hunger and thirst, as Jesus put it, for something greater than the things of this world. And we see this in the people here who come and seek out Jesus. Right? Their hunger was satisfied for a while. And it seems that they want to know more, that they have a hunger to believe. That's the first section of this text, that they're hungry to believe. This crowd comes to Jesus in the beginning of this chapter last week with a desire to see signs and wonders. They've heard of Jesus. They've heard about maybe the water turning into wine. They've heard about the healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. They've they've heard these things. There's some stirring going on. And so this crowd of... It says 5,000, but we know, like, last week, 10 to 12,000 with women and children. Right? Word has spread. And Jesus feeds them, and then he leaves. He, he goes away and disappears. He wants to be alone for a while, and yet they still follow him. Right? Other boats even showed up, come to look, trying to see the place where this had all happened. I, I, in my mind, I picture um, when they had the fireworks in Hartford, 
And everybody comes out on their boats, right? Because it's so crowded, the people with boats come out to see what's happening, right? People come to see, and where's Jesus? Oh, this is where the feeding of the 5,000, are the baskets left? Is there any more bread to eat? Where, I, we see one boat, where, where did Jesus go? So they went out looking for him, and they find him. And they ask him, how did you even get here? And you think, well, it was pretty miraculous, right? He walked on water. The disciples went in a boat, and he walked on water. And, he, and in my mind, if that was me, I'd be like, do I have a story to tell you? But he actually doesn't answer their question. He skips right over it. And he could have answered the question. He could have told them about how, he, well, I walked on water. That was another sign and wonder that you guys have been looking for, so let me tell you about it. And the disciples, well, you know them. I wasn't there, and they got all scared and were afraid, and then I showed up, and they were calm again. I said, do not be afraid. And they said, okay, Jesus, we believe you. You're here. Thank you. But he doesn't. He says, he gets to the heart, let's say, or the stomach of the matter. But I think often we, we say the heart, as if like that drives our passions. But I think stomach also drives our passions. Right? Last week I mentioned I, was, I get hangry. Right? You get hungry and you get angry and it kind of drives your passions. When you're hungry, all you want to do is find the food that will satisfy you. Right? Jacob and Esau. Right? Esau is the, the great hunter, gets the food, has a, has a stew going. Or, yeah, and, um, or Jacob is. And, and Esau's out hunting. He's the great hunter and he comes back and he's like, I'm so hungry, just give me some food. I'll even sell you my birthright. He's willing to give up everything just for food. And these people ate their fill but missed the sign, what was truly significant in what Jesus was doing. They saw the superficial power of Jesus. I don't don't use that term lightly. It's power that comes from, from Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, who comes from heaven, the ability to do miracles, But it was superficial in their minds because that's what they wanted. And they wanted more of it. Their bellies were filled and they wanted more. They were ready to sign up if Jesus could just do more signs and more miracles. And instead he actually gives them a hard saying. There's actually, if you're ever looking for a, a good book, to, uh, like a reference book. There's actually a really good book called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. It's, it's like, real, it's really thick, which is kind of humorous because there are a lot of hard sayings, but we glance over them because maybe sometimes we're so used to it. He gives them a hard saying. He wants to know who will truly follow him, not because of signs, not because of miracle bread, Because they are being drawn by the truth of the gospel, being drawn to Jesus Christ by the Heavenly Father. He wants to see who wants the bread that will never perish. Like the woman at the well who's eager to be supplied, to be given an endless supply of, of drinking water that would eliminate her need to have to make the trips to the well in the heat of the day, not with the other women who look down upon her. These people want the same thing, but they want the bread. They want to end the supply of, of the miracle bread. Very similar if we look back in the Old Testament 
after the Exodus, or during the Exodus, when, G, when the Father gives them manna, and they take it for granted, and they just want that endless supply of the miracle bread. But his kingdom is not of this world. And the crowd doesn't understand. And they ask Jesus, well, what kind, of, what kind of things can I do? What kind of works can I accomplish to get this miracle bread? Right? Isn't their presumption amazing? What can I do? Tell me, Jesus, so the, the things I want to do, what can I do? They think that they can meet any challenge God gives them on their own strength. They do not understand that eternal life, the hunger that will cease, this, the true bread of life is a gift given by God by grace. But they want to earn it. They think they can earn it. And Jesus wants to gift them grace. This is the word of God, he's saying. Believe. You know what the work you can do is actually not a work. It's belief. It's faith. Faith, and faith with the proper Christ as the object, is what God requires. Not, by, not works. And even the faith that we must exercise is the fruit of God's activity, right? Awakening our soul. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism actually says, waking our minds to the knowledge of Christ is how it puts it. That's what we see here. And Jesus kind of going back and forth about God's sovereignty and eternal life and being called to Jesus. They continue to want more signs. And so Jesus points them back to Moses and the people of Israel. Right? Just as the Father gave manna to Israel, now he gives you bread that is truly miraculous. Because it's a bread that will give you life, life eternally. They're like, give us this bread. Well, Jesus has a big twist coming. Right? The twist that's coming. He says, no, I am that bread. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. And the Father give, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. What comforting words of Jesus. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He came, just like manna, he came down. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. He's talking about people. He's talking about the people that God is calling to him, that he will lose none of these people that God calls to him. And in the last days, he will raise them up. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the divine power and sovereignty of God to save those who are lost. And this should be of great comfort to us because it is God doing the work. Just like Jesus calling forth forth Lazarus from the grave. Lazarus is dead and Jesus says, arise and come back to life. Right? Like being born again. 
We have been given the gift of new life, the gift of a resurrected life. This is God making dead people live. And the Jews grumble and they complain about Jesus. How could he say such things? How could he compare himself? How could he claim to be the Son of Man? I mean, they knew what that meant. How could he do this? How could he say such things? And then they kind of, they, in a sarcastic way, it seems like, isn't this Joseph's son? And we all remember how that went, right? I mean, we all remember that was a little kind of shady birth, right? Because they don't believe in the, they don't believe in the virgin birth. They don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, is the Anointed One. They don't believe that. All they remember were the rumors. Mary's pregnant and they're not married yet. Joseph said that wasn't his. You know, like, little ooh, shirt collar pulling. We know his parents. How This can't be. We know. This is not right. There's no one. He, he just, it doesn't phase Jesus. He moves on. He continues saying things over and over and over again. No one can come to no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. These these, these leaders don't get it. Still, he's like, you're not going to get it until the Father opens your eyes and changes your heart. The interesting, um, the word draw, right? Like, um, not like draw a picture, right? But like you draw water from a well. It's interesting because this word, um, most everywhere else is actually translated drag. Drag. Like, I will drag you out of here if I have to. That kind of drag. There's an interesting story. Um, like in James, in James 2.6, it says, is, is it not the rich who drag you into court? Right, it's the same word, but there it's translated drag instead of draw. Now, one sounds nice. Right, draw. Let me drop some water. It's all it's smooth, it's simple, I'm just doing it. The other one sounds violent and rough. R.C. Sproul, um, right, one of the, the great theologians of modern times, and he actually, I think, passed away. Or was we just celebrated, it would have been his 80th birthday, I think, just a couple days ago. And um, he passed away last year. Um, he tells a story of when he was debating somebody about this verse, about free will and salvation and God's sovereignty and what does God do and what, what, what's up to us. And this professor said to Dr. Sproul, he said, well, actually the word means closer to what we translate here in the English Bible as draw, Professor Sproul. After all, um, after all, he, you don't. He said he quoted some some Greek text outside of the Bible about how the word, you know, getting the water out of the well and drawing and all that, like we draw water out of the well. And he said to Dr. Sproul, we don't drag water out, we draw it out. This word, therefore, has much more of a sense of wooing, right? Wooing all men to himself. So it doesn't mean what you think it means, Dr. Sproul. And Dr. Sproul said, you know, there was laughter, after this whole business, uh, after this whole well business, 
And then he looked at his friend, his debating partner, and said, yes, I understand that it can mean draw, but it also means drag because none of us stand at the top of the well and go, here, water, water, come out. I compel you to come out of the well. And it's true. I was thinking about this in terms of how do we get across the idea of being, right, the rich, it's, it's a violent move, like the rich dragging the poor into court to take what they have. And the idea isn't that, that, that the father is dragging people, kicking and screaming into the kingdom. It is that our hearts are changed, and we do it with great joy. Right? We understand this in terms of how we, um, I say we, but us men, how we change from boys to men. Right? Um, Mike is not here, so it's okay. So, like, you talk about Micah getting married, and he's like, no way that I would ever, no way I would ever get married. He's so sure of it, right? Think of, like, myself, I probably said the same thing when I was a kid as well. So if I was a young boy and I was told I had to marry a young Kelly, a young girl from Buffalo, you would have to drag me kicking and screaming. Right? But at some point, my life changed. Right? I grew and I met her and I fell in love with her. Right, with my heart, my mind, my soul had been changed. I wasn't the boy that I once was. I had been changed. And so I was dragged to the altar, but out of pure love and desire, something I could have not contemplated before. Jesus does that to us. Right? He changes us. He changes our hearts to see a grace, to see a beauty, to see a love in him that we cannot resist. Right? Some might, have called, might, might call it irresistible grace. That when our eyes are opened to the knowledge and love and beauty of Christ, we see something so irresistibly wonderful. We cannot resist. We are dragged into the presence of him. And it's not a kicking and screaming. It is a joyful running and jumping and skipping if you're so choose to do that. And Jesus explains this even further. He's like, your fathers ate the manna and died. Right? Because he's going back and forth, back and forth, saying, no, 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 the father's bringing you to me. The father's bringing you to me. No, I am the bread of life. You don't, again, you don't understand. Truly, 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 truly. He's like, let me explain it to you again. Your fathers ate the manna and died. It was not a bread that could sustain eternal life. But if you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you will have eternal life. Here he is giving us somewhat of a pretext to the Lord's Supper. I mean, as we go through it, we see it more and more, right? Eat my flesh, drink my blood, you will have eternal life. Just as he does in Matthew 26, and as Paul reiterates in um, 1 Corinthians 11, and we get at the heart of the debate between the different churches throughout the ages about what the Lord's Supper means. Roman Catholics and Lutherans read into the text and if they believe it refers to something, um, some kind of physical physical presence of Jesus Christ, right, of our Savior's body and the sacraments. And we don't shy away. We call it a sacrament. We don't believe that the Lord's Supper saves in any way. But we do believe that it's sacred and meaningful and deep. 
And so Lutherans and, and Catholics believe that the physical presence of, of the Savior's body is in the sacrament, and they do so in different ways. Um, so Roman Catholics believe that the, the, the elements literally turn in some mysterious way, turn into the physical body and blood of Jesus Christ. The Lutherans have a more nuanced view that, it, that something um, mysterious also happens and that it's there, but not, it's like, it's called consubstantial. It's in, with, under, it's actually very complicated. Like even Lutheran theologians, like it's a very complicated idea. But it's without ceasing to look and smell and taste and feel like bread and wine. In our, our stream of, of church history and theology, um, we, don't, we don't believe that. We actually um, we don't believe that it, it meshes with the Christology of Christ and who he is physically. That, that Christ truly possesses a human form, a human nature, I should say, and a true human body. Right, and a true human body, even though Christ and his spirit can be present in multiple places, a true human body can only be present at one place at one time. And we never see Jesus' physical body present in more than one place in more than one time in Scripture. Right, in other branches in, in Protestantism, um, sometimes it's called a low view of the Lord's Supper, uh, meaning that it's just a remembrance view. So that when you take the body and blood of Jesus Christ, there's nothing... There's nothing special actually happening. So they, as in most of Protestantism outside of the Reformed world, um, would say that the, the body and blood of Jesus Christ is merely and purely remembering what Jesus has done. And so there's some sense that we are actually closer as, reformed, as a Reformed body to Lutheranism and Catholicism than we are to most of other Protestantism because we truly believe that something special is happening in the Lord's Supper. We actually hold to a spiritual presence view, so not physical presence, but that Christ in his spirit is physically present in the elements of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. That our, our Savior's body, as he has risen, is localized in heaven, but Christ is a divine person who also possesses a true divine nature, which is omnipresent. In his deity, Christ is present everywhere. So the context of today's passage shows us that to eat and drink Christ's flesh and blood is not an actual carnal act, but a spiritual act of trusting in Jesus Christ. And so though all we're getting, we're getting into the Lord's Supper. It's not fully instituted yet as it is in Matthew 26. But Jesus is saying in order to actually do that, a spiritual awakening, renewal has to be present and there. An act of trusting in Jesus. In John 6, we see parallels the eating that leads to eternal life with belief making the two things identical. That to eat of Jesus is to believe in Jesus. And the Lord's Supper, it signs and seals, it's, the Lord's Supper signs and seals this belief, showing that the one in whom we believe is both God and man, having a true human body, that we need the humanity of Christ no less than we need his deity, and the physical elements of the supper impress this and put this upon our hearts and minds, that Jesus truly did die and his flesh was torn and his blood was shed so that we might eat and drink in belief of what he has offered us into his sacrifice. 
And that when we do so, and we come to the Lord's table, and we eat and drink of the elements, that we are just remembering it. Although that's the, at the very least part of it, because we are remembering what he has done. But that in some mysterious way, we are partaking in what he has done, and he is gifting us a sustaining grace through the bread and through the wine. And these are the hard sayings of Jesus, right? That he draws a crowd, but then when, because of what he says, they leave. It says, many of the other disciples who followed him turned away and no longer walked with him. So the crowd came, 10, 12,000 people. They followed him. They wanted to know, where can we get more of this bread, this bread? And he changes, this, he changes their idea of bread. And he tells them what true bread is, what the true bread of life is. And they don't want that. The crowds reject him and turn away. And even the disciples questioned. Right? Peter confesses his belief, and yet there's still one here who is an imposter, who's in a wolf in sheep's clothing, who is a devil, who is not a true disciple. The hard saying is that salvation is found in no one else other than Jesus. And he says, believe And in belief, you will have my body and my blood. You will have the bread of life. In this discourse, in this teaching of Jesus, there's great wisdom for us as the church. Just as Jesus proclaims, we proclaim. We do not perform signs and wonders to get people in the door as a bait and switch. Jesus fed with physical food out of compassion. For the physical needs of people. And then he tried to get away. When he saw that the crowds desired for more physical signs, he pointed them to the true spiritual sign of the bread that he had fed them. Beware of the crowd. In a sense, I'm preaching to the choir because we're not some large crowd, right? We're not some large mega church or multi site campus. But we preach the gospel every week. So that those of us that are here that are believers might be renewed and refreshed and continue to wonder at the mysteries of Jesus Christ. And that those here that do not know him might be dragged, not kicking and screaming, but in joy and rejoicing and love and beauty and compassion into the Father's arms, into the kingdom. And do it with great joy. And if we ever, the kind of final warning for us is that if we are a church that ever gets to the place where we don't think we need the hard sayings of Jesus, right, to the place where we think we've gotten it, we've gotten the gospel, so now let us move on to other matters. The warning is that that prayer might be that Jesus Christ would shut our doors forever. Barring some miraculous revival and working of the Spirit to transform us. Because what we see here in the life of Jesus is the centrality of his message is that he is the Savior to the world. And that our message, as we proclaim it, should not stray from the message of Jesus. That we should never move on. Now that we've gotten Jesus, we should move on. 
So let us be a church that proclaims Jesus week to week and day to day from the pulpit, but also around our table when we eat and drink together, when we eat and drink as a family in our homes, when we have people in our homes, when we're out into the community, into the square. And one of the things that um, I've talked about in the past is that to see a vision of a church that believes that the gospel is for the pulpit, the table, and the square. So we preach the gospel from the pulpit, but we also share the gospel around in community, around the table, in our homes, but also as we enter the public square, the gospel is transforming our lives in the way that we interact with people who do not know Christ so that they too might know who the bread of life truly is. As a church, as we, as we move to create more opportunities for us as a people to gather, right, in the future as we maybe have some men's ministry and women's ministry, um, start gospel communities that meet on a, maybe on a bi-weekly or weekly basis, I mean, these things are coming, that we would be a people, that everything we do is about Jesus and his gospel. That would be our hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your message. Let us be a people of your word, a people of your gospel, in spirit and in truth, in love and grace, in mercy and in justice. Let us remember who the bread of life truly is. Let us not be satisfied on the things of this world, but find our ultimate satisfaction on the one who has given us everything. In Jesus Christ, we pray in your name. Amen.